0: Welcome everyone to this, the 18th podcast in a series of podcasts brought to you by Good Thinking, London's digital mental wellbeing service. Good Thinking provides instant online support for mental wellbeing in London. My is Tracey Parr and I'm the Director of Good Thinking. In this podcast, Good Thinking's Clinical Director, Dr Richard Graham, is in discussion with Professor Neil Greenberg, Professor of Defence Mental Health at King's College, London. They will be discussing dealing with stress and trauma. As lockdown eases, unease may take its place. Neil will be sharing insights on how we can respond to the stresses, even the traumas, that many of us have lived with in the past months and how there is much to learn from how the military manage these transitions. The Good Thinking podcasts are available on all the main podcast channels. We would really appreciate it if you would share, rate and review our podcasts so we can respond to what you want, as we want as many people as possible to benefit from these really interesting discussions. Thank you. And over to Richard and Neil.
1: Thank you, Tracy, And thank you, Neil, for giving us your time today. I wonder, Neil, if you could tell us a little bit about your experience in many different areas of work and research that has helped you to develop the recovery plan that has been adopted and supported by the Royal College of Psychiatrists to support healthcare and other workers manage the transition to the new normal. I think we're calling it going forwards.
2: So my career to date has been quite varied. I'm a doctor and a psychiatrist and a professor of psychiatry at King's College London. I served for 23 years in the British military in the Royal Navy, serving also with the Royal Marines and went and did my all arms commando course training and got the Green Beret and spent time basically supporting the Royal Marines, doing a whole variety of interesting tasks. And during the time I was in the military, I became very interested not just in being a psychiatrist, which I am, but also in the academic side of psychiatry, in trying to understand why it is that people become unwell and particularly about how organisations can protect the mental health of staff who are doing really challenging tasks so that they both don't become ill, but also so that they can keep going and perform really well in the most arduous circumstances. I left the military about seven years ago and continued to work at King's College London, both within the King's Centre for Military Health Research, but also within a unit called the Health Protection Research Unit, which specifically looks at organizations uh, internationally, but particularly the UK, outside of the military, who work in difficult circumstances, and particularly with trauma. And actually, much of our work, even before COVID-19, was related to pandemic outbreaks, and how to understand how to keep people functioning, even when it was very uncertain. So we've done work, for instance, after SARS, after Ebola, and also actually in other sort of strange circumstances, such as after the Fukushima incident in Japan. Wow. And so I guess my sort of research interest and my sort of mental health interest has always been about how organisations fare in these challenging times. And I've managed very luckily to combine my research interest with also having a real strong interest in occupational psychiatry, which is about the mental health of of individuals who are at work but, but are suffering some difficulties. I've been very interested in in trying to help those people stay at work. And on the other side, just to kind of of sum it all up, is I also get involved giving expert evidence in courts and in legal cases where things don't always go right. So it's quite helpful to see the other side of things about when it it goes wrong, because that can help you put the right things in place to prevent you getting there.
1: Well, that's a fantastic overview of what sounds like an extraordinary career. And I guess one of the interesting aspects of this pandemic is the role of social media has played... Only perhaps history will tell us how much. And misinformation is quite a challenge for all of us to to know what's true. And so hearing of your particular range of experiences, one can see why the Royal College might have thought of you as the go-to person when it came to thinking about a recovery plan. So hopefully anyone listening to this will realise we truly are in expert hands. Given all of those experiences, I thought it might be helpful for our listeners at this point, perhaps to try and understand better some of the language that we may use around trauma and stress and other terms that we'll come to, to sort of help them understand later on some of the points that you are making in your recovery plan, which is just a fantastic contribution at this time. So I guess some of the terms most people will be familiar with will be terms like stress or chronic stress, even burnout could you give us a bit of a, an expert sort of consideration of, of what those terms might mean for you?
2: Yes. So I often think it's useful to think about this as a sort of spectrum. And I tend to think about it in sort of four different colours to be easily understood. So sort of you know, green is where many of us are, that we have day to day niggles. We have maybe occasional day or two. When we don't feel so great about ourselves or we're a bit more avoidant. And that, for most of us, might be termed as pressure. So it might be termed that something's going on. It's causing us to react a bit. There's nothing pathological or abnormal about that. It's part of day-to-day life. We then merge into sort of yellow, which is going along the spectrum where actually we're perhaps not sleeping so well. It's going on for a little while. We're not our usual selves. Maybe people have noticed, maybe they haven't, maybe we'll keep it to ourselves. Again, many of us go into that pressurized zone quite commonly with that particular sort of, difficult project or a prolonged period of being busy at work or in our social lives. We then go into amber, which is what I would call stress. And the amber sort of zone is, you know, you may be a bit more shouty, you, you might stop doing your sports, you might be drinking more alcohol than you normally are. And although you're not unwell, you're definitely in the zone where actually you're not your normal selves. And it's not going to take you very much more to tip over into kind of the red zone where you might actually be unwell. Now, that sort of amber zone, people might term that as burnout or chronic stress at times. Many of us will have experienced that in small doses. And of course, unfortunately, some of us experience it in quite a lot of a dose. And then we get into red, which is where we actually cross from being a stressed individual into someone who actually has developed a mental health problem. And that might be post-traumatic stress disorder, if it was a traumatic event. It might be depression or anxiety. And sometimes it might actually make us you know, turn to substances, so we might use excessive alcohol or even turn to illicit drugs. And so if you think about the the, the sort of reactions sort of going from sort of green through to red, I think it's helpful because people like me, you know, psychiatrists are really useful when it comes to people who have red problems, because actually they, they need treatment and care. But actually, for many of the yellow and amber problems for sort of pressure and the stress actually the solutions aren't often delivered by mental health care professionals we can advise they're mostly about changes in your life or changes in your work pattern or changes that you can practically make in your life
1: yes that's really helpful so restoring those healthy habits and routines can make a difference in if you're in that sort of yellow amber area before things are starting to get more serious If you could then tell us a little more about post-traumatic stress then, and and perhaps some of the new thinking around that, perhaps relating to post-traumatic growth and the perhaps rather troubling concept of moral injury too.
2: Yes, a post-traumatic stress disorder is a mental illness. It's it's defined in, in our classic mental health textbooks. And it's a situation that occurs when an individual has been exposed to an event that's definitely out of the ordinary, often involving death, or threatened death or sexual violence or something similar like that. And it leads uh, over a period of time to a reaction that's persistent and importantly, it's, it's impairing. So it's not just having symptoms, it's having symptoms that, that cause you to, to not be able to carry on with your day-to-day life. And those symptoms tend to fall into four sort of clusters. Uh, The first cluster is what are called re-experiencing symptoms. So you may dream about it. You may be thinking about it all the time. You might be jumpy or alert when you're reminded of the incident. You often avoid, so you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to go near situations or places that remind you of it. It changes the way that you think about the world. It changes your mood and your thought patterns. And what it does is distort your perception. So it changes your view of the world. The world is no longer safe. I'm no longer a good person. I can no longer be close to people that I love. And then lastly, it changes in the way that we react. And so we often sleep poorly, poor concentration, maybe very jumpy, maybe irritable, and maybe vigilant for for other threats. And you put all those symptoms together and they go on for at least a month and quite commonly much longer than that. And if they impair function, that's what we call post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, what's... Interesting about that particular illness is actually, although it can affect perhaps somewhere in the region of about 5% of the general population, many people suffer with some of those symptoms for a short period of time after a trauma. And those symptoms get better by themselves without the need for any professional intervention. Some people also find that actually when they go through one of these traumatical, really challenging times, they don't just not become ill, but actually they psychologically grow as a result. So... That is a term that's called post-traumatic growth. And it describes the ability that once you've coped with intense adversity and actually done okay, that actually next time you face adversity, you feel more able and more ready to encounter that and and come out positively. And then the last concept you mentioned there is one of what's called moral injury. And moral injury is is not an illness. It's sort of very much a stress-type condition. But it's a situation that occurs when you believe that the events around you and what's happening – is very much at odds with your own ethical or moral code. And often it's because either you haven't been able to do things that you, that you felt you should do, you've done things that you, you feel that you shouldn't have done, or that other people have sort of let you down, people in trusted authorities. And so in the current situations, it, it might be a case that a healthcare worker would have liked to have given more care if only they had the right experience or right equipment, or that they had to stand back and watch someone die because they weren't able to do the right thing or that they tried to do a procedure that they weren't properly qualified for, or even as, as often is, is debated at the moment, they feel perhaps let down by their managers or by the, by the government because they didn't have the right equipment to deliver the care that they needed to. And moral injury is important because it's often associated with feelings of shame or guilt. And because people don't like to talk about them, what it means is that they remain in this psychologically vulnerable place and that it doesn't take a lot more for someone who has a moral injury to then... Uh, drift into becoming depressed or to develop PTSD, or even sadly at times to, to actually develop suicidal thoughts.
1: Reminds me a little of some of the work on burnout, which I think showed that those more likely to burn out often had very high standards and would keep going right until they reached a sort of crisis point. And then, of course, some of the symptoms which perhaps link with that shame and guilt include Also, the risk of cynicism, perhaps even bitterness, that again, sort of interferes with your worldview, your ability to do things. So that does sound like a tremendously important area for all of us to be thinking about at this time.
2: Yeah, if I just say on the burnout side, because burnout, again, is not a diagnosis, but it's a well-recognized syndrome, is one of the difficulties with both burnout and, and with moral injury is that because we know that most people who have mental health difficulties feel really reluctant to talk about them then what happens is people do struggle on until the point that they, in inverted commas, they break. And all the evidence is, is that if we can put in place the right sort of preventative approaches and if we can be really aware of how our colleagues are doing and to sort of nip it in the bud and get in there early, actually we may prevent people going on to develop mental health problems by getting them to talk about them and deal with the problems practically at a much earlier stage. And that really is very much the, the approach that my research work and the, and the work that the armed forces try and do in order to keep troops going, even when you know, times are really difficult.
1: Yes, it almost sounds like a sort of way of trying to cope with disillusionment, that you're not in the situation you wish to be in and you're not doing quite what you'd like to be doing. But nonetheless, that is the situation.
2: Well, absolutely. And, and I think one of the challenges at the moment is there are plenty of people out there who have spent a lot of time criticising others, saying that they should have done this and they should have done that and we didn't prepare and we, this was wrong. And, you know, to some degree, it, it's easy to sort of throw criticism at uh, others when, in fact, actually the, the whole world, to be fair, doesn't have the answers for what's going on at the moment. It's easy to see at this stage that some people seem to be doing better or worse in some particular ways. But actually, the situation is one that none of us wanted and that actually people can often be doing incredibly difficult and challenging work and doing their best. But despite that, bad outcomes might happen. and It doesn't mean that they're not doing the right thing. It just really means that the situation that we find ourselves in is one which is unprecedented. And if you take back to the military examples, military personnel who are operating in really challenging environments, they may not have asked to be there. Okay, they were in the military, but they were sent there by their nation to, to do whatever job they were asked to do. And actually, you make the best of the situation that you're in. And actually, most military personnel would say that the reason that they carry on performing really well in the face of adversity isn't for the greater good or for the mission or for their nation. It's actually because they're doing it for each other. Yeah, you know, there's a team of individuals in a difficult situation. They've got each other's back, and they're going to get through it. And that is what seems to create really effective fighting forces, you know, wherever you are in the world. And I think translating that to the current situation is if you look at healthcare professionals who are doing, you know, amazingly extraordinary work at the moment. Actually, the most important thing is that as a team, they look out for each other because that would not just protect their mental health; it would also allow them to do their job better.
1: That's a very helpful reminder again for everyone to keep those social connections, whether with family or your colleagues, to kind of have that sense of belonging to something that perhaps goes beyond the current crisis. I just want to ask you at this point then, is there anything health workers could do today beyond that? Because that does sound like a tremendously important tip for them to sort of not exactly inoculate, because I I think that's probably too big an ask of anyone at this point in time. But are there little things that we might be able to do now, recognising that what follows may be much more important?
2: So I think at the moment, if you're a healthcare team, and you're doing really challenging work, and, and I have to say, to be fair, it's not just people in intensive care units, although they are doing great work. It's also lots of healthcare workers who aren't able to do the job that they would normally be able to do. You know, so cancer specialists who can't deliver life-saving care because of the, the COVID situation, you know, they too are in very morally injurious situations where the, 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 there is no right answer. I think at the moment the things that are likely to be helpful are basically to be able to have a frank and honest discussion about the challenges, so not to bottle it up, and for senior team leaders to actually get the team together and actually to talk frankly not just about how others are doing but also how they're doing themselves. In healthcare settings, this process is often known as what's called a Schwartz round, which is where you, you get people together as teams. And actually, it's led by someone in charge, but actually, it's a very horizontal meeting. And by that, I mean that everybody gets a chance to participate and to realise that all those challenges that they may be facing personally are actually ones that other people, no matter how experienced they've been facing too. And actually, by sharing those difficulties, it kind of helps people, particularly in healthcare settings, to develop a sense of meaning. And if you can develop a narrative and that is meaningful and says, do you know what, the situation's rubbish, but we tried our best. And whilst everyone didn't survive, there are many, many people who did survive because of the work that we did. So it's not just focus on the good and forget the bad. It's trying to actually understand that actually the situation is far from ideal. And all you can do in those situations is to do your very best. And that, that has to be good enough because there is no other way that you could have functioned.
1: And I think there's that really interesting line there between not bottling things up, which means kind of suppressing feeling that probably is part of the exhaustion that could be part of the situation, and sort of almost venting in a way that can be undermining of yourself and the value. Because as you say, every bit is a, a contribution, is is a bonus that you can do. So It reminds me very much of our conversation with Janet Wingrove uh, from the Maudsley, where acknowledging and then re-engaging with what you're doing seemed to be a really helpful way of supporting people and that purpose that gets you up in the morning and back to work.
2: Absolutely. And one of the things that also really helps and links with that is about this concept of psychological safety, that actually many of us don't talk about these difficult and challenging things because we kind of feel that we'll be judged by others in a way that is not pleasant and is difficult to deal with. And actually, one of the roles that we know of a, of a supervisor, of someone who's your immediate team leader rather than who's the chief executive, you know, who, who obviously is important. But we know that that team leaders and supervisors have a really critical role in trying to engender a culture of psychological safety. So when they say, how are you doing? And someone says, I'm fine. We all know that fine can mean anything. It might mean that someone's falling apart, but they don't want to talk about it. Or it might mean that actually they're in a really good psychological state. And so a supervisor really has a responsibility, I believe, to be able to have a, what I call a psychologically savvy chat. That is a conversation with someone that isn't meaningless, but actually acknowledges the fact that things are difficult and that the supervisor really wants to hear and they really want to help. And we know from the research work that's been done by our team, but also other teams around the globe, that actually one of the really important things to help supervisors do that is to give them the skills to feel confident into having those sort of conversations. Because I think many supervisors want to help their staff, but don't really know how to open that door, how to get a real conversation going, which is why so many of them rely on how are you doing, I'm fine, well, that's great. And we know that from all the evidence that we have, that supervisors who are able to foster psychological safety and to have psychologically savvy chats with their staff are far more likely to have teams who have good mental health. And importantly, they're also more likely to be able to persuade team members who might not have great health, who might be in that red zone, to actually go and seek professional care because the team member then really knows that the supervisor has got their back. And of course, without feeling that, they're unlikely to put their hand up and acknowledge difficulties.
1: But it sounds, again, it's really helpful for them to be able to acknowledge the reality of the situation, perhaps sometimes say the things that can't be said to enable those conversations to continue whilst also keep on going with the work.
2: Absolutely. Certainly our work from King's College London has very much focused on on how to keep teams functional. And really, when you look at the evidence together, what it really says is you need to foster really good bonds between team members. You need to make sure supervisors can have those psychologically savvy chats. You need to adopt very much a a nip it in the bud approach to try and deal with problems when they're early and incipient before they become crises, which unfortunately many people wait for those to happen before they seek help. And that also we know that having peer support in place, so having colleagues around who aren't just good mates, but actually have been trained how to listen properly and how to monitor mental health, which which actually might sound complicated, but actually it's not. That actually you put that together and what you have is a really psychologically robust team. And there's a role for mental health professionals like me, but our job isn't to come in and provide what's sometimes called uh, trauma debriefing or psychological debriefing. We know that that is a bad idea. We know that actually bringing in professionals too early to people who are normally distressed actually isn't just not helpful, it actually can make them worse. And our NISA, NICE, our National Institute for Health and Care Excellence guidelines on the management of trauma, makes it very clear that we should not be using psychological debriefing and that the role for people like me in, in talking to traumatized people is only when they actually, unfortunately, have become ill. And I so said that that often is many weeks or maybe many months after the trauma. And before that, what we want to do is to encourage people to do adaptive coping, is to speak to people around them, you know, to go for that run, maybe have a glass of wine or two, but not seven, (laughs) and to have a chance to reflect on what's happened to them. Because actually, when we do that, most of the time, we recover. And then we, you know, as it says in the, the college's recovery plan, that actually, we shouldn't just be going for let's be okay. we should be going for growth, we should be going for more resilient people who are actually better able to face adversity in the future.
1: That's a really great ambition that despite everything we're struggling with at the moment, we should be striving to leave this phase of our country's life or our own lives with something perhaps better. I'd just like to ask you a little more now, then, about some of the key themes or aspects of the recovery plan that, as you said, has now been adopted by the Royal College of Psychiatrists. What do you think some of the key messages would be for managers in the health sector, but I also suspect in other areas, perhaps even a supervisor in a supermarket who's been dealing with all the pressures they've been under? What would you think of the key messages?
2: I think that actually, although the healthcare sector is doing an amazing job, I think we shouldn't forget that all key workers are likely to be doing things that are pretty much outside of their comfort zone, you know, and they too need just as much support. The recovery plan has a number of elements to it. And what we try to do is very much base it on the good scientific principles that already exist. And it's important to say, I think, that when you think about traumatic events generally, and I agree that the current situation is far from being a classic traumatic event because they normally happen over a short period of time. When you think about traumatic events, we know that you can think about what someone was like before the event, You know the event itself, how unpleasant was it, how traumatic was it, and then what happens afterwards. And actually, when you look about those three different clusters, we know that actually the most predictive cluster is about what happens afterwards. And what that means to say is actually managing the recovery bit isn't just a bit important. It's the most important of all the things that could be done. And even if we haven't prepared people as ideally as we want to, and even if the trauma has been worse than we imagined, if we recover people well and support them, then there's every reason to think that actually the majority will do okay and and hopefully will grow. So the plan has a number of elements to it. The first is making sure that people get a proper thank you. And by that, it's not just a letter or you know a little pin that you might put on saying I was a key worker. That's all very nice. A proper thank you really also means acknowledging that actually people have been away from their families and they've been in threatening and challenging environments for some time. So actually, rather than finish on a Thursday and go back to work on a Monday and catch up with all the work that hasn't been done, people are going to need a graded, phased return to work. They're going to need some time to reconnect with their family, to have a bit of leave, and then to begin to get their head around what they've done and also what comes next. When the military bring troops back from deployment, they don't bring them back and then send them straight back to work there is a structured and staged process through which people come. And the reason they do that is the evidence has shown over years that people need some time to reset. When people do come back to work, we very much believe that supervisors, again, have a key role. The supervisors should reconnect with the member of staff, you know, be that remotely or two metres distant or however it's done, to really find out what their experiences were. And they shouldn't just make assumptions about what might have happened. Certainly in the healthcare sector, it might well be that people have been deployed to different hospitals or different wards. So supervisors may have really no idea what the individual's done. And you can't begin to make an action plan about what to do until you really understand what someone's been through. And it's also an opportunity to start that psychologically savvy conversation and actually really get some trust built from the staff member to the supervisor in terms of believing that the supervisor's got their back. When the supervisor does speak to them, and has that open conversation, they should be aware of whether someone might be in a higher risk group. So, for instance, in the healthcare sector, if you've got someone who was working in audiology, you know, doing hearing beforehand, but actually they got moved to assist in the intensive care ward and they were very much out of their depth, we know that those sorts of people are, are going to be at higher risk. We've also heard some discussion you know, about people from BAME groups, you know, again, who, who appear to be at higher risk. And so, again, that's something that a supervisor should be able to identify. And it it doesn't mean we should treat these people differently, but it means we should be extra cautious in trying to identify whether they might have been affected or not. We also should be aware of what are called secondary stressors, which are all the things that have happened to people which aren't directly related to the trauma itself. You know, so people who have been at work doing these amazing roles and amazing jobs They've also had a home life. They may have lost people to the illness. They may have had children or family members who are ill or or not been functioning well. And they may have financial problems. Maybe their partner might have lost their job or the like. You won't know that unless you ask some sensitive questions and have someone who feels confident enough to tell you the answers. So the supervisor chat is really, really important. And from that, you can make a plan how to be compassionate and flexible and help someone go through that graded return to work hopefully successfully, rather than adding to their stress and making it more likely they'll become unwell. We also know that it's important that people are actively monitored. So our nice guidelines on the management of PTSD tell us that actually, rather than just let people get back to work, we should keep an eye on people. And that's probably for a a number of months to make sure that actually we recognize early signs of difficulties. And and again, very much a doctor nip it in the bud approach So as an example, if someone was performing poorly, you know, a couple of months after coming back, having worked in the COVID-19 crisis, I think the supervisors and the trust should start off with, are you okay?" rather than what's gone wrong? And that sort of active monitoring is really important. And then the last two things are to give people the opportunity to reflect. So again, we've talked about those Schwartz rounds, giving people a chance to adopt and to create a meaningful narrative. And then very, 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 lastly is to look at people who don't come into work. So we know in the healthcare service, sickness absence is usually reasonably high. And rather than just assume that someone's, you know, off because they're unwell and it's their own business, I think we should, again, be proactively checking on people to really make sure that the reason for their sickness absence might be claimed to be their back. But actually, it's they're really having, you know, some some real difficulties. And again, that's going to need some sensitive, psychologically savvy questioning in order to not be too invasive into someone's privacy, but at the same time to be aware that they may be having difficulties.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds fantastic to to really make sure no one gets left behind, really, because it is possible for us all to, as you say, keep feelings, anxieties, private, hidden from almost ourselves. And so those will come out one way or another. And if somebody's there reaching out to you, and perhaps you're starting to slip, that does sound hugely important. It also sounds to me like there's a role for something we've discovered at Good Thinking, which is allowing people to assess themselves anonymously and privately.
2: Yes. So one of the ways that we're thinking, and I'm sort of working with NHS England on this, is about developing a tool. We actually developed it before for a completely different function, which allows people to check on their own mental health in a way that, as you quite rightly said, is wholly anonymous. So that they can do it in the confidence that no one's going to see their answers and that the only person who's going to find out that information is themselves. And so we're suggesting very much that at three months and probably six months and one year, but maybe other time points as well, that people are encouraged to access a simple anonymous online tool, which will use a few very well validated psychological health questionnaires that won't take too long. And on the basis of how they score on those questionnaires, they'll be given what's called tailored advice. So, if they're scoring low, they'll be told that's great. If they're scoring slightly higher, they can have the option of looking at information sheets or evidence based websites or linked into support lines that are being run locally or nationally. And if the scores are really quite high, they'll be advised that they really should go and speak to a healthcare professional and given some information, depending on where they are in the country, where the best place is for them to go locally. And they'll be able to print out their answers so that when they go to the healthcare professional, rather than say, oh, I'm here, you know, the, the machine told me to come, they can hand out the printout, which actually has got you know, what we think might be up. And that should hopefully alert the healthcare professional that this person's got a difficulty and they can then go into a perfectly normal healthcare consultation. We call that process case finding. It sounds a bit like psychological health screening, but it's not in that sense. Because we know that the people who will engage with this or more likely to engage with it are likely to be ones who might have difficulties. A very similar process was used after London bombings and we also developed at King's a process to do similarly after the Paris, Tunisia and Brussels attacks. And we found actually a really large percentage of people who filled out those tools were identified correctly as having mental health difficulties. So this is a potentially very useful way of allowing people to get a kind of semi-professional look at their mental health and then give them tailored advice about how to make their situation better.
1: And I wouldn't underestimate the value of the machine telling you to do something because I think many of us can experience something like that as not just anonymous in terms of us not being identifiable, but kind of neutral as well. It won't be loaded in the way that perhaps even a clinician, a psychiatrist talking to you might feel sort of a bit more exposing. So I think it's a really good plan to give people that chance to let a machine give them a few pointers.
2: Absolutely. On that, which is a sort of interesting and allied point, is that there was a really good study done a few years ago looking at different ways of delivering therapy. And what they compared was instant messaging therapy, so where you were typing on a computer, never saw the therapist, didn't know who they were, versus face-to-face therapy. And I think the initial thought was that the instant messaging therapy wouldn't work very well, but actually it did work just as well. You know, and this was delivering proper therapy rather than just a chit chat. It managed to treat depression as effectively as face-to-face therapy. And you can think there are lots of really distinct advantages of that for some people, not having to you know, go to where the therapist is, not having to see their reactions, not even having to say who you are, necessarily, actually can really encourage people to be much more open. And therefore, with a good therapeutic relationship, actually, you can get a really positive outcome. So I'm completely with you. I think that there's no reason to lie to the computer. You know, it's very much lying to yourself if you are. And certainly the evidence we have so far, as I mentioned earlier, suggests that that sort of case-finding approach might be really valuable. I'm sure, Neil,
1: that anyone listening to this will be now very familiar with the sheer breadth of your knowledge and understanding of this field. But perhaps, and I hope this has been said to you in other places, what also comes across to me is the sheer compassion for the members of our health services that are working heroically, as often is said now, but also for the wider country, that the sort of thinking ahead to reduce the suffering and to help people move forward in the most positive way just seems such a fantastic message at this time.
2: Thank you very much. Esther. That's very kind. I certainly think that whilst this crisis is really horrible and challenging for most of us, actually the best way we can come out of this is to be a, a stronger nation and actually perhaps to recognise that actually by supporting people at work in terms of their health and well-being, isn't just a nice to do that actually is what we would have called in the military a, a false multiplier if you've got a team who actually are psychologically healthy they actually perform better and everybody wins out of that situation
1: well thank you so much for that comprehensive description of all the well, decades it's turning out of hard work that you've been engaged with but we're going to allow you as we come to the end of the podcast a moment of decompression i think if that's the right term And it's also a moment where people who have listened to other podcasts might recognize that one of the things we also use in health at times is either humor or, in my case, a heavy dollop of sarcasm. To speak the unspeakable, a slight twist of outrage has always worked very well for the people I've admired. So we're talking about emerging from lockdown, but I'm now going to suggest the very opposite, which is to almost roll back, I guess, three months now and ask you, so our listeners can get to know you a little better. If you were about to enter lockdown or isolation and you could have taken three celebrities or famous prominent people with you, who would you have taken?
2: I would take Winston Churchill, Taylor Swift and David Walliams with me. (laughs) Winston Churchill would be useful because clearly he's a man who's good at showing leadership in difficult times. And also I'd be really fascinated to talk to him about his depression and his black dog, as he called it. Taylor Swift, because she can sing great songs, as my twin nine-year-old girls have taught me, that actually she's not just a great performer, she also has some great music. And David Walliams, just because he's really wacky. And I think when things perhaps might seem a bit dim or dismal in the future, I'm sure David also would be able to pull out of the hat some different and alternative and probably slightly banal way of looking at things that would, uh, would bring us all a, a chuckle and, and cheer us up.
1: I am trying to get my head around what those three people are going to be like in the same space together. So hopefully you've got some sort of cunning negotiation or other skills to sort of help keep things smooth between three pretty impressive and forceful characters.
2: Well, as I said earlier on, one of the things that's always interested me is about how groups and organisations get on. So, you know, I have to give myself a a (laughs) bit of a conundrum, don't I? I realise it wouldn't be fun.
1: OK, well, that I think is, is one of the more imaginative lists of famous figures we've heard to date. Just in case it does go quite horribly wrong, as teams sometimes can, you're allowed to take a book, some music, a film, perhaps even a recording of an event. It could be a sporting event or a piece of theatre. Would you have a sense of what you take with you?
2: Yes. In terms of a book, I would take How to Make Friends and Influence People. (laughs) That sounds very wise. So many years ago when I was in the military, I always used to take a book away with me that I thought would be pretty rubbish because I thought it would then last me for the whole deployment. I could sort of dip into it and dip out. And so one of the times I think I went to Jordan with the Marines and I took How to Make Friends and Influence People thinking it wouldn't be very good. But it was the most amazing book so one way is that was great, because I loved it. The bad thing was, that, of course, I finished it really quickly, so I didn't have anything else to read for the rest of the deployment. So I'd take that. And I think I'd also take a film, I'd take Remains of the Day. It's a great, poignant film that I've watched many times, and I, I see a different thing in it each time I watch it. And of course, I could get David Taylor and Winston to give me their views too.
1: You've rather dispelled my hope that you might have taken The Art of War in with you, which perhaps could have worked as
2: well. <laughs> yes,
1: absolutely. <laughs> Finally, we'll allow you some luxury. What would you take to sweeten the pill of lockdown?
2: I think that I would take a really nicely comfortable bed. And if I could be cheeky, maybe I would secrete my twin nine-year-old girls in it, because they're often in there in a Sunday morning anyway. And if I managed to sneak them into lockdown, once they're in there, they couldn't get out. And therefore, it would make be a happier place. And my wife is too. As well, obviously.
1: Okay, well, we probably need to get a sense check from Taylor, David and Sir Winston on that. But uh, <laughs> otherwise, it sounds like as you've echoed in your recovery plan, keeping the really important relationships to the fore in your life is a really good suggestion. So thank you so much, Neil, for sharing your recovery plan and all your insights with us today and to our listeners. And I think we will be trying to make use of some of those suggestions in our work at Good Thinking. I think especially for employers, managers and supervisors, so the people who could you know, really help the recovery are going to feel supported and skilled in doing so. So thank you very much indeed.
2: No problems. Thank you as well.
0: Our music is kindly provided by Key Changes, a charity offering award-winning music engagement and recovery services for people experiencing mental health issues. Thank you to all at Key Changes.